From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Matsai, and this is ReSound. Would you like to be that young and pretty? You hear me? What? I don't have my hearing aid on. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, and sound bites we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on and share the best with you each week. And I wish you'd quit looking at all those old pictures. Wouldn't they make you sad? Today, a glamorous grandma whose past seeps into her granddaughter's future. And one couple opens up about what's happening in their bedroom. And it's not what you think. He always wrestles around in his bed like this. And it keeps me up. Stay with us. Meet Michaela Bly. She's a storyteller who here is sharing her family history with middle school students. Sometimes it's hard to hear really big, tragic, awful things. And it's hard to read about things in history and go, okay, that is millions of people who were killed, who were exterminated. But I can't imagine millions of people. But you can imagine my grandma. When I first heard Michaela's story, I was both invigorated and spent by the end. It took me on a complicated journey that was beautiful and sad, difficult and happy, a sure sign that it was masterfully told. It's the story of a relationship between a woman and her grandmother that's built on such a deep sense of love that I wished I could just jump right into the story and meet them both. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But with the magic of audio, we do get an intimate glimpse at the lives of these two women in this story called That You Should Be Happy. When I was 10, me and my brother got to fly by ourselves for the first time to see my grandparents in Los Angeles. My grandmother picked us up at the gate. She had on a Kelly green pantsuit, white heels, a white leather purse, and she clicked with us down the halls of LAX to her beige Cadillac where there was candy in the front seat. She put on red lipstick before we left the parking garage. We drove all the way down Ventura Boulevard in the San Fernando Valley, and she pointed out the places she went and what they used to be. Her red hair was set like a movie star from the 1950s. When we got to her house, my grandfather was waiting with coffee cake and orange juice from the orange tree in their backyard. My grandmother was very glamorous. She was Czech, and she dressed and sounded like Zsa, Zsa Gabor from Green Acres. She kept her nails done. She smoothed her sweater down and lifted her chin up whenever a photo was being taken. But she wasn't just glamorous. She was very real-world intelligent. She ran her own business as a real estate agent for years. Also, I don't know if I can express to you how much this woman loved chocolate. I'm a chocoholic. It's better than to be an alcoholic, don't you think so? I agree. <laughs> I think it's much better. What? I think it's much better. Yeah. I secretly recorded my grandmother sometimes. I just loved her voice. I had favorite things that she said. Most probably. Close the light. These are good problems. She liked to say, you're smart like your grandmother. And that you should be happy. That's the main thing. This was one of her favorite things to say.
1993, when I was 15, they opened the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. We got untimed tickets because my grandparents were both survivors. They flew from L.A., and we took the train from Connecticut. It was my job to take them to the museum. My grandmother wore heels and a sweater with sequins. My grandfather wore his soft coat and soft hat. We spent 10 literal hours in this museum. They wanted to read every single plaque. I wondered how much they had known already of what they were reading. Some survivors became historians of the war, but my grandparents did not. I think this is because they just wanted to live their new lives in the U.S. They were both looking for the bright spot in the next frame. At the very end of the exhibits, right before the exit, there is a photo blown up the size of a museum wall. It's an aerial photo of the trains going to Auschwitz, the concentration camp, taken by American planes in 1944, which is pretty crazy. It's basically saying, look, we knew about this. This is on us, too. My grandmother looks at this photo, and she looks at the date, and she says, I was there. I knew she had been there. But now we were standing side by side, staring together at this huge, grainy photo of trains. She tells me and Papa, by that time, we were heading there. So me and my family, we most probably were on one of these trains. Papa says, yeah, maybe. The three of us sat on a bench, looking at this photo for a long time. My grandparents held hands, but I was scared to touch them. It was the closest their history had ever felt. My grandmother, Ila, grew up in a town called Ungvar in Czechoslovakia. From how she's talked about it, it sounds like Ungvar was the place to be before the war if you were young. She spent all her money on clothes. She went out with big groups of friends. But by 1943, she was 22, they had been invaded by Hungary, and there were quotas on Jews and businesses and a curfew for Jewish people. Still, Ila married her attorney boyfriend Deju in a huge wedding, and according to her, the whole city came to celebrate. And then in spring of 1944, a new policy forced all the Jews of Ungvar out of their homes and into a ghetto, which was a brick factory outside of town. My grandmother was working for the city attorney, and her boss got her special dispensation to wear a yellow armband and leave the ghetto to work. Because she could leave the brick factory, she could smuggle money out to bury in people's backyards for them for when they returned, and on the way back, she would smuggle food in. Sometimes I think about my grandmother trying to concentrate in her job at the attorney's office while her new husband and parents and cousins were hungry in the factory, while her house was sealed up by the state. I think about her heading to work in town where it's business as usual, while all their Jewish neighbors and high school friends are imprisoned just a couple of miles away. In May 1944, the Hungarian soldiers started taking the people out of the brick factory and putting them on trains. No one knew where they were going. Her husband, Deju, was taken, and separately, Ila and her parents and her cousins were put on a train. She was about to turn 23, and she was three months pregnant. The train was packed, and they traveled for days with no food or water. When they stopped, they were taken off. Guards were dividing people into lines. Old people and children in one line, men in one line, women in another, all separate. They were at Auschwitz. 
My grandma watched as a man said to a guard, my wife is pregnant, please take very good care of her. The guard said, sure. And he put the pregnant woman in the line with the old people and children. You know how sometimes you make a decision, you're not sure why you made it, but your gut made it instead of your brain? Hila didn't really think. She watched the pregnant woman join the old people and children, and she just went ahead into the women's line. Her parents were put in the line for older people. Very soon after she got to the camp, Deju, her husband, got her a message over the fence from the men's section. He told her, do not tell anyone you're pregnant. So she didn't, except for a few people who could help her. Guards would ask, who is pregnant? We'll give you double rations. But she didn't say a thing. She had to be clever to hide her pregnancy. She worked in the kitchens for extra bread from the girls there, and she got a friend who worked in supplies to give her an extra big dress. She also had to avoid selection. That was when Dr. Joseph Mengele arrived to inspect the bodies of all the women inmates and chose who would work and who was sick. Each barrack of 600 women walked by him and the guards, naked, holding their dresses over their heads. Those who were selected to work went to dig ditches for tanks and other things. But if there was a mark on someone's body, if she looked sick or unable to work, he took her out of the line and she was never heard from again. I know now what happened to the women who were taken away. They were loaded onto trucks and dumped in the crematorium. They were subjects of Dr. Mengele's gruesome experiments. But my grandmother didn't know any of that yet. Ela was starting to show. She knew she had to avoid that inspection. And this is how she did it. There were kapos, Jewish guards, on either side of the barracks where Mengele would walk through. The guards were hungry too. She used the extra bread from the kitchen to bribe the guards to sneak her out, and she would hide in an empty barrack until Mengele came out. Then she'd loop back around to the barrack he'd just visited. There was a midwife she had known in Ungvar, who told her, when you think it's time to have this baby, try to wait until nighttime and come get me and I'll help you. And then it was time to have the baby. This is the part that I have trouble telling every time I try. There was a stone structure in the middle of the barrack where my grandmother gave birth. She had to stay very quiet. She was thin and the baby was thin. It was an easy delivery. The baby didn't cry. And the midwife said, kiss this baby, you will have others. And she kissed him. She was 23. She didn't have her parents with her. This was her first baby. And she didn't get to keep it. After she delivered, she stayed in the infirmary for two days. There was a Jewish nurse, Olga who helped her and hid her condition as she recovered. And she also told her about the crematorium. She told Ela that their parents were dead and what the crematorium actually was. Ela couldn't stay for too long because Dr. Mengele came in and said, what's wrong with that one? And Olga said, no, she's fine. She just has a cold. She's going back to work. She gave her really sturdy shoes 
and a really warm dress, and she sent her back out. We've talked about this baby in my family. When she was growing up, my mom thought that the baby had been adopted and that she had a brother somewhere. I actually don't know that the baby was born alive. I sort of feel like if you only have a cup of soup and a piece of bread every day for the six months that you're there, that's not a lot to grow a baby. But I never said that to my grandmother. When she mentioned the baby in conversation, we let her talk, but didn't ask questions. She said the baby was very good, didn't cry, and she knew that it was certain death to keep the baby. But I also have a theory that when she was pregnant in the camp, the idea of having a baby, a family, a future, was what kept her alive. That she had someone else worth staying alive for. Maybe it took the focus off of her, off of what was happening. She just thought about getting enough food and staying alive for that future. There's so much more to her story. She escaped during a death march out of Auschwitz and walked across Poland toward home. Back in Ungvar, she ran black market merchandise over the borders. Deju didn't come back from the camp, and so she found my grandfather, Jula, who brought her French pastries. They got visas to America and ended up in Los Angeles because my grandmother wanted to live where the movie stars lived. They filled their suitcase with oranges on the boat ride over. There's all of that. And there's the real estate business and the family she had in Los Angeles, built from scratch, my mom and uncle and us, her five grandchildren. She was so glamorous her whole life. She wore silver fox in Ungvar and perfect red lipstick in Los Angeles. She named my mom after Judy Garland. It's all what got me here. It's the one million lucky moments that meant she made it out of the camp and got to the San Fernando Valley so she could have my mom and so my mom could have me. But I keep thinking about the baby. She had her baby in the dark. She was alone with the midwife, without her mother or grandmother. I've dreamed about that baby my whole life. They are terrible dreams. I'm always trying to save it. My grandmother told her story all the time. She told it over and over to us and to strangers in restaurants and seatmates on airplanes and pretty much whenever she could. I'd go with her to pick up her prescriptions, and by the time I got back from the window, the lady sitting next to her knew she was in Auschwitz, she has five grandchildren, she took a boat to America, and filled her suitcase with oranges. It was hard to hear her story and not feel like it was a mandate or a map. I knew she was glamorous and smart. If you asked her, her proudest accomplishment was her five grandchildren. And I thought how many lucky moments had gotten me here. What is the responsibility that comes with being this lucky? When I was in college, my grandmother was always asking me about boys. She seemed like she had dated a lot. She'd been kind of a dish, I think, when she was my age. I thought of her with red curly hair and a smart suit and picnics in the Czech countryside, leaning up against someone's car. 
I was doing theater. I curated rare books for the school library. I threw pretty great costume parties, but I didn't have any boyfriends. I had Ash, who was gay, and Ben, who was dating a different girl and only called me late at night. I never brought anyone home for Passover. I felt embarrassed when she asked me, like there was a timeline I wasn't following. I didn't think I was very lovable, much less glamorous. And I found her kind of intimidating, to be honest. I thought I must be very disappointing. After college, when I was 23, my grandfather died. He was the kindest, quietest man I'd ever known, and a wonderful baker, and told us he was bald from the helmet in the labor camp. My grandmother had stayed young, taking care of him. So after he died, I went out by myself to visit her and help her clean out his study and the garage. I could go because I was a teacher now, and I had summer vacations. I stayed with her for a week and a half, and it was the first time ever that it was just the two of us. When it was us together, something shifted. It was like we were roommates. She wasn't intimidating. She was kind of fun. When I was at her house, I didn't worry about being anywhere else. I'm the kind of person who needs to be getting something done all the time, and the pace of New York City makes me even more anxious. But at her house off Ventura Boulevard in the Valley, we got into this rhythm. You rest, then you do the banking. You read the newspaper a little, you rest, then you grocery shop at Ralph's. At the end of the day, you watch Jeopardy and that 70s show in syndication, and you eat a little chocolate and talk about how much you've accomplished. So, after that trip, I started flying out in the summers, just for a week at a time. The other cousins who lived in L.A., they saw her all the time. They had their own relationships with her. But I got to go out and have this special time. You know, people who went through concentration camp, nothing is a big problem. Everything is sol solvable, how they say it. Solvable, yeah. Uh, yeah, solvable. That's for you, but that's not for everybody. Don't you think so? When we were together, talking about the war was never an event. It was just part of the day. And there was no warning. We'd be talking about the new dry cleaner on Woodman, and suddenly she'd tell me how cold it was in Poland in 1944. If I asked her if something in the fridge was still good, she told me, you know, in the concentration camps, we didn't have what to eat. Because it was so bad there. You right. can't imagine. You don't have what to eat. Right. You were hungry all the time. You didn't have a dress. You didn't have anything. So sunshine and California and big leafy trees on her patio also meant cold and Europe and hunger. Everything we did, we did in spite of or after or because of the war. It was in every room with us. By the time I was 25, I had held down a teaching job for three whole years and managed to have a couple of boyfriends. But the ones I found never seemed like forever ones. When I was with someone, it was always like I was keeping some essential part of myself in a drawer. Sometimes it was my goofy, hopeful side that I left out of the relationship, and sometimes my nerdy side, and sometimes it was the part of me that wants to talk about aesthetics and ethics while we lay in bed. But there was always something. Meanwhile, my grandmother announced that the first grandchild to get married got the piano, and the first grandchild to have a baby got the piano bench. There was one guy, Jason. With him, my silly side was definitely in a drawer. But we got very serious, 
and my grandmother even met him at my brother's wedding. She flirted like crazy with him. He was totally charmed. At the wedding, he kept trying to make meaningful eye contact with me during the vows, like, look, this will be us one day. And I thought I would have to lock that drawer forever. And I couldn't. When we broke up, I lied to my grandmother for months on the phone. Then I finally told her, and she was so disappointed. She kept asking me about him. I tried to explain to her that I wasn't in love enough. I flew out to L.A. that summer and called her from baggage claim, and she said, great, you're here. Why did you break up with Jason? Back at her kitchen table, eating chocolate pudding from Trader Joe's, she said, listen, you just pick one. I just picked one. And I asked her, but didn't you think Papa was so wonderful? And she said he was medium. I thought I knew what she meant. For her, happiness hadn't been about grand, true love. It was about safety. He was the one who brought her French pastries after the war when they had wandered home and they waited for word of their families. They just teamed up. It wasn't about love. It was about defeating the past. So who was I to wait for true love? It felt like a spoiled thing to do, like asking if the bread was organic. When I left for home, she kissed me on the cheek and hugged me tightly against her sparkly sweater and told me, you're gonna be fine, that you should be happy, that's the main thing. Back in Brooklyn, teaching third grade, I called her every other week, and every other week she'd ask me about Jason again. Was it too late? Wasn't he so nice? Where was he right now? I felt stuck and sad, and every time I talked to her, I felt like I disappointed her more and more. My brother was married, my cousins were all well on their way to being married, and there was that thing that you should be happy. I wanted it. I wanted to live up to the luckiness and to her strength, to be a glamorous girl, a happy girl, living an extraordinary life. I felt so plain. But then something great happened. I was talking to my friend Celia, who for the last few months had just been happy all the time. She would hold your face lovingly when she said hi to you, and she was wearing all these silky tops. And I asked her, what's been happening with you? And she invited me to an orientation to something called the School of Womanly Arts. Basically, I gathered it was about self-esteem and being a woman, and I said, why not? So orientation was in a ballroom midtown, and there's all these women there who are just transcendently happy and all wearing pink feather boas. And Let's Get It Started by the Black Eyed Peas starts blasting, and the double doors of this hotel ballroom slam open, and in comes a palanquin. You know, a palanquin is like that thing Cleopatra got carried through Cairo on. It's being carried by two men in khakis and no shirts who look kind of confused like they were clearly just convinced to carry the palanquin right outside. And this woman riding it is dressed in silk pajamas. She's in her 50s with this perfect blowout. And she hops off, kisses one of the guys on the mouth, and grabs the microphone and yells, Hello, ladies! And the whole place cheers. And I cheer too.
So her name is Mama Gina, and she starts talking to us like a revival preacher, asking, are we sad? Are we sick of not getting what we want? And she has the answer. We just need to trust our turn on. She explains being turned on is not just about sex. It's about knowing in your gut that something is right and bragging about what you do well. When you're turned on, you're like a big taxi light drawing things to you and other people want to be part of the fun. And I fall under the spell, really, in a good way. The only thing in this room is joy. Maybe I can conjure an extraordinary life. I don't yet believe it, but Mama Gina is so powerful and so confident that I can be that too. So I joined the School of Womanly Arts. I figure nothing else has worked. And the woman who takes my check has amazing skin. And she smiles at me like she's in love with me already and says, welcome, and gives me a pink bag with my own pink boa. And we go for weekends once a month. We make lists of things we desire. We brag. We learn how to flirt. We have dance breaks every two hours in class and it starts working. I go on my first internet date ever, and I have an amazing time, and I buy new underwear, and it doesn't even cover my whole butt. Up to now, I'd gone to Los Angeles dreading the questions and feeling like I wasn't enough. But I came to LA that summer with a whole new strategy. I had a new, fun, sexy way of approaching life, and I was gonna use it with my grandmother too. We were two gorgeous girls. I went to swim aerobics with her and gossiped with the ladies. I asked her for makeup advice. And when she asked me about Jason, I told her, I'm playing the field. I kiss a lot of boys. How can you pick just one? And that worked. She said thoughtfully, that's a good thing. I kissed a lot of boys too. It was like Mama Gina taught me, have fun and people will have fun with you. I made a sign for her fridge to remind her what medicine to take. And it said, one glucosamine, one Prozac, grandma is gorgeous. I called her gorgeous all the time. I would get up in the morning and make her a banana smoothie and say, good morning, gorgeous. And she would laugh and read the LA Times on her white leather couch and drink the smoothie. That summer, thanks to my lady cult, I was discovering just how glamorous I could be. But she still liked it the best when I went out with friends who were boys and had Jewish sounding names and cars to pick me up in. I let her think they were dates. Because a Jewish boy who lives in LA, I can have my babies right here. I would say, Daniel or David or Isaac is going to pick me up. Is that okay? And she'd say, Absolutely. Do you want a house key? I won't wait up. Once my friend David was picking me up, and I told my grandmother, David's here. I'm heading out. I was wearing a sundress and a cardigan, and she comes out and she asks, this is what you're wearing? And she just reaches over and undoes the top button of my cardigan. And I was like, Grandma, grandmas do this. They want you to date Jewish boys from Universal City. But with her, it came with the weight of her story. Even glamorous was for a reason. The reason was babies. This is the dream I have about my grandmother's baby. Someone hands me the baby outside a lady's room. It's really small. I don't have any food, and I know I'm responsible for it. I spend the dream trying to wash it gently in the public bathroom sink. In one version of this dream, I say sorry a lot to the baby. My brother had the first great-grandchild. Ramona. He got the piano and the piano bench. 
There's a great picture. Grandma is holding Ramona like a little squash and smiling so wide. And Ramona has all of this red hair and a mohawk, even though she's just a few weeks old. And I was 30, and I was next in line. Every time she saw Ramona, she'd turn to me at some point in the visit and say, you should have one. When I was 16, when I thought about my grandma's baby in the camp, it was a terrible, sad, abstract idea. But when I was 30 and saw my grandmother with babies, it was a whole other thing. She made faces at them and called them darling and jingled her jewelry. It was wonderful and also made me want to cry. Once, my grandmother and I were at synagogue and she was watching a baby across the aisle. And just as it went to silent prayer, the whole place went quiet and she said loudly to me, have a baby. You don't even have to have a husband. It was funny, but it was also hard to hear. She was the only one of her siblings who made it out of the war. She had her first baby on cold stone. She rebuilt her family in California sunshine. What was I gonna do? When I was 31, I was still teaching third grade, but now I was dating the first grade teacher, Dustin. This was the first person I ever seriously considered picking. If I was going to pick one, he was the first one I thought, well, Maybe I'll pick him. He was sweet and funny and kind. He played guitar and loved kids as much as I did. The problem was we were the Sid and Nancy of our elementary school. We broke up and got back together so much that my boss checked with me before faculty meetings. We weren't the only reason there was a no alcohol reminder before school functions, but we were a big one. When we broke up, I wouldn't tell my grandmother because we were always getting back together and honestly, I didn't want to confuse her. But I was confused. With him, I left my nerdiest parts in a drawer and I missed those parts so much. I knew if we ended up together, we'd be settled and safe and I might just teach third grade forever. But I was starting to wonder if there was something else I wanted to do and someone else I might end up loving. He was definitely someone else's fantastic, but he was my medium and I couldn't bring myself to really pick him. Later that year, I flew from New York City to visit my grandma in the summer, the way I always did. The paintings on the walls in her house had not changed in 40 years, and she had the same lipsticks in little gold cases on her vanity. She still drove the Cadillac, but now she didn't like to make left turns into traffic, which, to be fair, are very challenging in Los Angeles. I was deciding if I should stay at my job teaching third grade, or if I should apply to grad school, or if I should go to Brazil. I will be totally honest that a couple of these were strategies to help me really successfully break up with Dustin. We talked about my job at the kitchen table, eating chocolate pudding. I told her about the PhD program I was thinking about. She said, you're smart like your grandmother. And then she asked, but can you still have a baby even if you go to grad school? Six months later, I broke up with Dustin for good in this all-night, terrible, yelling and crying big final breakup. I went home to change clothes before I went to school to teach, and I thought to myself, my grandmother is going to kill me. She was the only one I really didn't want to tell. He was supposed to come out to Los Angeles with me in two weeks. It was a mess of a moment. I had gotten into grad school and had just finally given notice at my job. 
I had broken up with Dustin, and my period was a week late. That morning, I was in front of my third graders, and my dad called my cell and told me that my grandmother had died. I left school to pack, but I couldn't face being alone in my apartment yet. So I went to Trader Joe's on my way to the train and bought chocolate orange peel, chocolate-covered almonds, and a big block of semi-sweet baker's chocolate for the plane. When I flew to Los Angeles, my period was already a week and a half late. I went to her funeral, definitely thinking I might be pregnant. We gathered at her house. My grandma is gorgeous note was still on the fridge, and she seemed to be just outside every room I walked into, clicking through in a pantsuit or a sequin sweater, photographs layered like pastry on all the surfaces. I was in charge of the program to hand out at the funeral, and I put her favorite photo on the front. It was taken when she was in her 50s, sitting on her leather couch, leaning forward a little, her chin up and to the right. She looks so good in that photo, and you can tell she knows it. It's not usual to have an open casket at a Jewish funeral. But before the funeral started, the man at the place asked us if we wanted to see her. They could open the casket for just the family. We stood in a weird, frozen tableau, me and my brother and mother and father, all touching. And they opened the casket. My mom took in her breath and got smaller. And my first thought was, my grandma would have been so annoyed about how she looked. She was very specific about lipstick and how her hair got set. She did a red, nice and easy rinse up until she died. And the body in the casket just did not look like her. The lipstick was coral, which I know she would not have chosen. And someone had given her a haircut before she died, when she was stuck in bed. And it was an old lady haircut, that layered helmet. It didn't look like her. She was old, but I never thought my grandmother was an old lady. She never wore sensible shoes. She was stylish. And it wasn't that she was vain. That's not it. It wasn't until I was looking at her in the casket that I figured it out. She respected the body that got her through and survived. She treated it with love and set her hair and smoothed her sweaters when photos got taken. I got back to Brooklyn after my grandmother's funeral, and now I was three weeks late. I found myself Googling prenatal vitamins. I was thinking, I'm the age my mom was when she had me. The last thing my grandmother said to me was have a baby. I thought I should keep it. Maybe I should have this baby. This image kept happening in my head of me driving at night, a little girl asleep in the front seat next to me. And then I got my period. Relief. But something else, too. Maybe loneliness. Even though she was gone, I still wanted to give my grandma what she wanted. I've spent the years since my grandmother died 
telling and retelling her story. I tell it to new friends, people at work, and I tell it to students at schools. I tell it because I really like talking about her. And I tell it to students because I think it's a great way to learn history. But I'm telling it to myself, too. All this time, I've been turning it over and over in my hands, trying to figure out what to do with it, read the mandate, or follow the map. I'm 39 now. I'm the only one of her grandchildren who hasn't had babies. There are five of us, and all of the cousins are married, except me. All of the cousins have children, except me. And here's something. I don't actually currently want babies. My brother already has the piano bench. I've hedged my bets. I froze my eggs. I signed up for a newsletter from Single Mothers by Choice, just for research. But I don't have that feeling where you want to eat the feet of the babies you see. In the years since my grandmother died, I've done a lot of things that surprised me. I went to Alaska by myself. I took a performance class where I had to kickbox and sing karaoke with a live jazz band, and I howled like a wolf while my teacher yelled at me. I started telling true stories on stage, tough and funny ones both, and ended up teaching people how to tell their important stories. I broke into my childhood house. I started a company called Cool Complimenters with my niece Ramona when she was six. We handed out compliments on the two train. I met a man from England here in New York and decided I might love him, and so I went to London for two weeks for our third date. Some of these things turned out great, and some did not. But I've realized I actually like going toward the things that scare me, and that maybe I have been like this all along. When I think about just the babies, yes, I'm not following the map. But the places I've ended up are sometimes pretty brave and definitely all mine. I started telling my grandmother's story at schools after I'd been telling stories a while. And I found that when I shared it like that in auditoriums with questions from eighth graders afterwards, I was able to see it in a new way. Every time I tell the story, I am going to get emotional about the baby but I don't have to be afraid of it anymore. I can take the story out and put it on a table and look at it separate from me. It isn't a mandate or a map. It's the dirt I was grown in. When you're an accident of circumstance, you're not just unlikely. You are a statistical impossibility. And that can make you feel like nothing you do will be big enough or right enough to deserve being alive. But I've been doing small, brave things all along. I tell her story, and I honor it, and I carry it. And I also get to make choices and mistakes that bring me toward happiness. That's what my grandmother wanted and what she gave me. She never said that you should be amazing. That's the main thing. When you fall down, you're... Belly flop? No, no, no. Now you're a zombie. Eat all the brains. No, I know it. I know it. That's Ramona, my niece, the other cool complimenter. She's the first great-grandchild. She's in third grade now, and she and I are really close. We get in trouble sometimes when I sort of forget that I'm the grown-up. You're still my baby, even though you're insane. <laughs> when we hang out, we get in a rhythm. We plan a project, we start it, we have a snack, we start another project. With the two of us, it feels like everything is possible, 
even if we don't always follow through. We have many projects that we start, but we don't finish. Like the Cool Complimenters is also a work in progress. We're family in a way that I love. I love that she's growing up knowing you can get married and have kids, or you can be just fine on your own. Do you remember what my present to you will be for high school graduation? Oh, yes, I remember. We would go on a camper, and we would go around the world um, making movies. Yeah, the United States, but yeah. Yeah, around the United States. Correct me. Um, I'm already looking forward to taking that trip with Ramona in nine years. Her dad already said it was okay. I'll probably do the driving at night, and Ramona can sleep in the front seat next to me. We will be two gorgeous girls, glamorous and loving, and smart like my grandmother. That was That You Should Be Happy by Michaela Bly for Family Ghosts, a podcast about the secrets, intrigues, and myths that every generation passes to the next. Michaela is a two-time Moth Grand Slam winner, a teacher of storytelling, and recently earned her doctorate in educational theater. Family life is chaotic. So many people ricocheting around on different flight paths in the same space. You never know if and when crashes may occur. But for the couple in our next story, one sacred, peaceful space amidst the pandemonium was always the marital bed. Until one day, it wasn't. Here is The Sleepers. I can remember our first bed together being this kind of really lumpy, hard futon that I think you'd had for many years. And I used to complain about it because I was a bit of a fuss pot with beds even back then. <laughs> and I remember you going to great lengths and putting the futon on the top of the roof where it was it's the most sun and you climbing up a ladder with this huge futon rolled up on your back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was very hard work. And sunning the futon so that it would be warm and fluffy and it was the most beautiful gesture and you were warm and smelling beautiful next to me and I remember, yeah, just loving sharing that space with you. I've always loved sharing a bed with you too. Except I never really got used to all the talking. You used to <laughs> always talk, talk, talk all about the day. And it, I can remember once having to say, look, Kate, I just can't talk anymore. <laughs> it's like even the other night when we were going to bed, we were texting. <laughs> like I was in my bedroom texting you and then you were in your bedroom texting me. There's always one other little thing to talk about. My mum and dad sleep in separate beds because mum doesn't want to listen to dad snoring. I think we slowly drifted into separate rooms after we had our first child. 
Yeah. I kind of became this really light sleeper and was always on the alert through the night. And after nights of being up with your snoring, I'd just be irritable and cranky with you all the time. And in the end, you moved into the office and you've been sleeping there ever since. How do you feel about talking about this and recording it? This is a real sensitive subject for me. I don't talk about us not sleeping in the same bed to either my friends or other people because I feel that they judge me as if we weren't in love or we weren't having a good relationship. As a child, I always thought it was weird when you hear kids at school talking about their mum and dad who don't sleep in the same bed. And I've always thought it would be weird. I'd never do that, I'd say. I'd have to sleep in the same bed as my partner. I don't know, I just thought it was a real, a, a real place of, um, well, love. I wonder if our kids think it's weird that we don't sleep together. If Dad didn't have his own room and he slept with Mum, me and Luca could have our own rooms. I don't like sharing my room with my brother Otto because um, he always rustles around in his bed like this and it keeps me up. So when Otto's like rolling around from side to side, he rustles in bed? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm just trying to rest my body up and then he rustles or like... Sometimes when I'm really tired, my sister's not and she wants to stay up and I want to go to sleep, which is quite annoying. She's not so confident in the dark. She's a bit scared. I'm scared of the dark because I have my favourite toy and his name's Ted and I feel like bad guys are real even though they're not real and they're going to steal my favourite toy, Ted. And I feel like they're hiding on the side and under the bed. What do you do when you're scared of the dark? I just, um, like, it's okay, Luca, it's okay, just go to sleep. As far as I'm concerned, the bed is the most important part of the house. I love preparing the bed, um, washing the sheets. It's one of my most favourite times, is getting into my pyjamas and getting into bed. Oh, I feel really bad that I snore, and I'm sad that it means that we can't share a bed. So what are we going to do? Because we don't have enough rooms for us all to have our own room. So who do you think deserves having their own room or who should have their own room the most? Maybe me because I'm going to be doing lots of studying and if I was going to have the attic, it's full of boxes and dead rats and things like that. I don't think the attic's really an option. Like, I wouldn't want you to sleep up there. It's not even really a bedroom. It's more of a, like, a dark cave. Well, maybe you and Dad could sleep in the same room and you could use earplugs. I have, I have kind of tried the earplugs. 
Does it help? Not really, because the snoring's really, really loud. You could sing la 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 and put earplugs in, in your head like that. So put earplugs in and also go la 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 like that. In your head. Oh, to sing in my head. <laughs> Until you get tired and you fall asleep. The funny thing is that you snore too, but I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> So is it just that you want your own rooms or do you think it's a problem that Dad and I sleep separately? No, it's not really a problem because if both of us have a bad dream on one night, Luca could go into your bed and I could go into Dad's bed just so it doesn't get too crowded in one bed. It's not a problem because in the morning my Dad comes into my mum's room. And why does he come into my room in the morning? Because he just wants to have a little cuddle. So I'll get up in the mornings and then I'll get my pillow and I'll walk through the house, through the kitchen and then through the living room and I'll open the door and then maybe you'll say hi, Pab, or whatever and then I'll crawl into bed with you and it's always nice just to feel your body warmth and snuggle in for a bit. I don't mind sharing a room with Luca for a little bit longer. Until she's not scared of the dark anymore. So Dad can keep the extra room for now. How about you put the blanket on top? The pillows and it's so Do you think we will ever sleep in the same room again? I hope so. But either way, I still think we're extremely close and kindred. We're all under one roof together at night. Yeah. And even though we're in separate rooms, there's like these little pods of sleeping bodies in our one small little house. Snoring away. Yeah, snoring away. <laughs> and I like that big nest feeling and it's nice just the way it is yeah That was The Sleepers, 
by Kate Montague, Mira Bertwintonic, and Crystal Duhame for the podcast Love Me from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Some listeners may know that my own family contains bits of both of today's stories. My father, John Maxi, was both a concentration camp survivor whose life depended on a thousand strokes of luck and, as it happened, an unholy snorer. Mr. Maxi's office, this is Marie. May I help? Hi, Marie. It's Gwen. Is Dad there? Sure, hold on. Thanks. Hello, Gwenny. Hi, Dad. How are you? Hi, sweetheart. How you doing? Okay. I want to play something for you over the phone since I'm at work, okay? Yeah. Okay, so just listen up. I'm listening. But is it five minutes, ten minutes? Oh, no, 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 much less than that. I have time. I just wanted to know how long I should be prepared to. Okay, hold on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who is that? Who is it? Yeah. What do you mean, who is it? You you taped me? Yeah, that's you. No kidding. <laughs> this is what mom puts up with? No. <laughs> that's funny. Poor woman. Is there an equivalent to snoring that you have to put up with from her? No, no, no. Yeah, we're constant bitching, but that's okay. I'm accustomed to it. I don't mind it. In fact, I miss it when nobody picks on me. We hope you've enjoyed these stories about families, relationships, and the complex and beautiful way they fit together. It's never linear, but then again, what fun would that be? You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. The Third Coast team also includes Emily Kennedy and Rebecca Silverman. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough.